Sweet tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new sweet tarts, gummies, fruity splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts dare to combine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, today's episode is a bonus one, a special episode. Between now and the show's return at the end of January, I'm going to release a few different shows for you to enjoy, all with different themes to them. Now, this week's episode is called Rock's Great Stories Volume 1. It's a nice mix of some of the amazing tales I've been told across the series, with these focusing on some of my early guests and interviews from episodes 1 through 10. You'll hear stories about the Beatles, Kicking Down the Door for Women in Rock, an iconic song that helped to break down the Iron Curtain, the early days of punk in the UK, how it felt to replace Keith Moon in The Who, I mean, one of rock's legendary drummers, of course, and how a now-lauded and idolised album was pretty much disregarded on release. Absolutely brilliant stories, I promise you. And as I said, all these come from the earliest episodes of Vintage Rock Pod, all the way back in 2020. Ooh, sounds so long ago, doesn't it? So I would urge you to go back and listen to these great tales, and then go back and listen to the full interviews as well. But let's start with a defining song, one that pretty much became the poster video on MTV for a few years. Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. Now, on episode two, I spoke with Dire Straits' ever-present member and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. John Ilsley, all about this song and the seminal album it belonged to, Brothers in Arms. Now, the band made this record on the back of their first number one album in the UK, Love Over Gold. So I started by asking him if the band felt any added pressure going in to record Brothers in Arms because of this. Um, I th- not, not consciously. I, I think that you know we approached Brothers in Arms like we approached all the others. We found we had a bit more time. I think... Uh, uh, up until this point, up until about 1983, we finished the Love Over Gold tour, and we didn't actually go to America on that, on that one because we, sorry, that was my window banging. Um, we, you know, we were pretty exhausted. I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd done an enormous amount of touring yeah. um, over the five years before, um, before the end of Love Over Gold tour, and we were, so we, we needed a break, and in fact, actually, that was, that was the time to take the break after Love of the Gold. And, and um, you know, so we, we took our time with Brothers in Arms a bit more than we did with the others, but we still approached it in the same kind of way. You know, it's quite, a lot of this is about the kind of songs that Mark was bringing to the table. These the, the, the Brothers in Arms songs needed a little bit more consideration, I think. Uh, there was a quite a... a a, a sort of depth of music on that um, on that record, which took a lot of people by surprise. And of course, technology was changing. I mean, the whole digital thing was starting. 
and then the whole you know, CD revolution. And I mean, it, you know, there's a whole lot of things going on right then, which was, you know, not only just artistically, but also commercially with the CD being pushed. And MTV was a big deal then, of course. It had just come over from America. And well, um, I was just going to say there, obviously you were kind of very much at the front, the vanguard in terms of things like that. When you mentioned CDs, the first album to sell as a million copies on compact disc itself. I believe so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then obviously you mentioned MTV. It was the first um, video played on MTV Europe. It became almost the poster song, didn't it? The poster video for MTV kind of generation. Yes, it's ironic, really, because I mean, the, the song itself is a bit of a, a bit of an iro- ironic view of the whole kind of uh, MTV thing. You know, mm. uh, uh, America didn't understand the irony of that at all. So of course, <laughs> it was put on, it was put on heavy rotation in America, which was. Thank you very much. Um, that became a very big song in the States, Money for Nothing, my goodness. Um, and in fact, actually, when you want to talk about stats and stuff, that was the first time we had a number one album, and number one single in America, which was, uh, that's kind of a, 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 a bit of a milestone, really, for the band as well. Yeah, very big deal. So just talking about Money for Nothing, um, what happened with Sting? Well, how did he get involved? Was he involved early on or was he drafted in a bit later? Or how did that come about? Well, that's another of life's coincidences. I mean, the whole thing, we were, we were just in Montserrat having, you know, just making the record and, um, you know, drinking beer in Andy's bar afterwards and all the rest of it and having a very nice time. Although I did have to say, this was the Caribbean and it rained for six weeks. Solid. <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't much sort of time out of the studio. We, so I suppose that's the reason probably why we got on with a bit of work. But um, Sting uh, turned up in... Um, uh, I think it was January. He was on. He he'd already recorded with the police down there. I think at at at, at um, George's studio, uh, George Martin's studio. And so he'd lo- he'd fallen in love with Montserrat, and he was a great windsurfer. And so he'd come down. Actually, he was on holiday, and um, we heard he was around, and he and he knew we were there. So he came up. We'd met him a few times before, and he came up to listen to some some uh, some of the music one night and have supper with us at the studio and. Uh, he was listening to Money for Nothing and he just turned around. I think he turned around to us and said, you bastards, you've done it again. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, that's, a, you know, that's, uh, that's fantastic. That's a really, that, that's, that's going to go, that one. So we thought, well, this, the sage has spoken. So Mark, Mark said to him, well, if you think it's so good, why don't you go and sing on it? So he literally walked into the, into the, into the studio, got in front of a microphone and just what you hear is what he did. He just sort of made, you know, and then of course we tidied it up a bit afterwards, you know, but it was a very spontaneous um, addition to the record really. And it wasn't, it was completely unexpected. We didn't know he was going to be there, but uh, there you are. That's how these things happen in life. The wonderful John Ilsley there. Now, next up, let's hear from a German rocker, frontman and lead singer with the multi-platinum selling band The Scorpions, Klaus Meiner. At the end of the 80s, The Scorpions were one of the first Western bands allowed into Russia to go behind the Iron Curtain and perform legitimately for the Russian public. And from these experiences came a song which became an anthem across Europe, the iconic Wind of Change. Now, recently, there's been a theory that the song was actually written by the 
the CIA to infiltrate and help end the Cold War, but I'm not buying into that. So, in my interview with Klaus, who was an awful lot of fun, I'll tell you, I asked him about the song and started by asking him where the iconic whistle part came from. It was just, if I would be a guitar player, you know, like uh, probably I would have come up with some cool riff or, or something, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> something on my guitar. But I was just uh, playing around with my little piano with like a DX7. And uh, it was just playing around with it. And this whistle, the lyrics, uh, the melodies, everything came up just because... The inspiration for that song and what we went through and what we saw between 88 in Leningrad and one year later in Moscow, uh, it was such a deep inspiration, you know. And I think this is uh, the best way you write a song and it, it comes uh, from deep inside, you know. And uh, it's not you you want to write a song about... Uh, uh, the, the the Berlin Wall or anything, you know, and you walk for hours and hours, days and days <laughs> to find the right hook line. So this song, it came to me, you know, and uh, the whistle, uh, I thought it's it's cool because I was thinking about songs like Jealous Guy, John Lennon, you know, or uh, Guns N' Roses, you know, there were, there were bands, they used like the whistle, like, like a, a throwaway kind mm -hmm. of thing, you know, yeah. and with this song, uh, I follow the Moskwa down to Gorky Park. It had this kind of vibe, you know. It's just uh, a very personal kind of thing and just a throwaway kind of feel, you know. <laughs> Something like that, you know. <laughs> not too much thinking about. And, of course, I, <laughs> I was not thinking about this could be something where later on uh, it was a huge discussion is this cool or is it not, you know? And uh, when the record company in America uh, wanted to release that song as a single, you know, the guy called me, the a &I guy called me and said, Klaus, you know, this will be the next single in the US, but we have to take the whistle out, you know? No way! <laughs> and I said, no way! <laughs> and uh, so, of course, we kept it in. It became also a hit in the United States. Yes. And in England, and we missed the number one slot because of Brian Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody missed number one because of Brian Adams at that time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And later later on when I met with Brian, you know, and uh, he was like standing in front of me, was bending over and said, OK, Klaus, come on, you can kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us a quick blast of the whistle now? Yes. <laughs> Oh man. That's no big deal. Wow. <laughs> oh, it's, it's no phenomenal. And I never <laughs> thought this would be something where, you know, it's such a uh it's such a big thing, you know. It I mean, of course, later on I realized with all the hooks inside that song, this this song was a hook line in its own, you know, and mm -hmm. it was a very yeah. strong, uh, uh, you would recognize that song immediately, you know, when the song started. And I know being in the studio, uh, when we recorded uh, the Crazy World album, it, uh, we worked with uh, uh, Keith Olsen in the studio. And I know Rudolf Matthias, our guitar players, they, 
they tried to come up with something cool, you know, for the intro and for those whistle parts to replace it with some cool guitar stuff, you know, <laughs> but it wouldn't work out. And in the end, they came back and said, you know, we feel also it's a good, it's, it is good the way it is, you know, and uh, we kept it that way. Fortunately, we did, you know. That interview was an awful lot of fun. Now, definitely want to check out if you haven't already. That's episode eight. Now, the Scorpions, currently they are back. Yes, their new album is almost set for release. Their lead single, Peacemaker, was released a couple of weeks ago and still rocks really, really hard. I'm excited to hear the record in full when it drops. Now, next up on the show, let's switch from hard rock and head back to the 60s for this fascinating chat I had on episode five with a guy called Mitch Murray. Now, he may not be a name you know, but he's a legendary songwriter whose songs have sold more than one billion copies worldwide. Let me say that again. One billion. Yes, phenomenal. Now, his career started back in the 60s and he wrote what was supposed to be the first single for a then unknown band called The Beatles. It was supposed to be the first single they released. Now, it was the first thing that the Fab Four went into Abbey Road Studios to record. But when Mitch heard their version of his song, How You Do It?, He was very, very unimpressed, and he refused to let them release it. It's a brilliant story, and here's Mitch to tell all. I think, I mean, when I heard, uh, first of all, I I hadn't signed a publishing contract for this song, and uh, if you do, if you do that, you don't actually have the control. The publisher has that control. And so I knew that, and uh, and I just felt it in my water, that it was, this was a hit. It was the end of my first year of, of professional songwriting. And, uh, and I thought, this is my best chance and I'm not going to blow it. And uh, so that's what happened. So with that in mind, um, they had to talk me into letting them try it out in the studio. Think of it, the, talking me into letting the Beatles record a mono song. But of course, it wasn't like that in those days. Beatles were our known group. Mm-hmm. I thought, what kind of a name is that? You know, all sorts of stuff that really looks uh, in h- history sort of paints a different picture over the years, doesn't it? I didn't want an unknown to do it. I, I really felt the song was a, a hit and I wanted a big artist. And in those days, big artists, you're talking about Adam Faith, Cliff Richard, you know, some of those, even Herman's Hermits. That mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that I really fancied for it. They said, look, We'll try it in the studio, and if you don't like it, you know, there's not much we can do about it. I heard it the day after they recorded it, and I also heard the B-side, and I thought, well, this is out of the question. It's terrible. They deliberately try to downplay it and, and not give it their best in order for Love Me Do, what's it called? Love Me Do, mercy, <laughs> um, for that to be the A-side. And although I thought Love Me Do was pretty catchy, but mine was catchier. And uh, so I was not happy. Anyway, look, I said, no, I can't let that happen. At the same time, the Beatles, uh, who had heard, you know, didn't want the song anyway. And um, and George Martin had given them the same deal, really. If you don't like it, we won't put it up. And, uh, and they said, we don't like it. <laughs> now, um, Brian Epstein loved it george martin loved it as a song i mean not necessarily mm-hmm. particularly that, that version so um and brian said that uh, he said look he said i've also got the second biggest 
artists in Liverpool. Uh, that's Jerry Mars and Jerry and the Pacemakers. Would you let them try it? And I said, yes, all right. But the same, yes, he said the same, the same deal. Anyway, when I heard that, I thought, oh yeah, where do I sign? That was a fantastic record he made. He had a terrific presence, uh, almost like an American presence where you really hear the, 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 the voice right up, but you also hear the background, everything's clear and the drums and the bar and the piano and all of that. And I thought, this is perfect. This is just what I wanted. Even though he's unknown, he'll, he'll have a hit with us. And he did, number one. Meanwhile, uh, Love Me Do came out. I probably got to number what, 15, 11. I have no idea. <laughs> Not the sort of figures I like to deal with. So <laughs> terrible. Anyway, um, but it worked out really well for all of us because the Beatles, Love Me Do, went into the charts. I got the first number one, the first Liverpool number one, which is How Do You Do It, had number one before the Beatles. And, um, and I also got the follow-up, and I started my career through that. The Beatles got Love Me Do, and I, I think they did quite well after that. Um, you, you talked about Jerry's follow-up then. You obviously wrote his second number one as well. I like it. Yes, I did, and that went to number one too. And uh, but before I didn't even know I was competing with John Lennon at the time for that <laughs> single. I just assumed, you know, I've just got number one. Of course, they want my next song. <laughs> Arrogance, lovely. So, um, uh, and, but I walked into Dick James' office one day, and Paul was in the other room with uh, with Dick and with Brian Epstein, and they said, "Just wait in Dick's office, and he'll be back in a second. So I walked into Dick's office and Lennon is sitting there and we'd all met each other a few times by Mm -hmm. then. And he said, uh, uh, and he stood up and we shook hands and he says, if you get that follow up for Jerry, I'll bloody thump you. (laughs) So I thought, right, that is worth a thump in anybody's money, you know. So we had a good laugh about that. And I think he was, I think he was kidding, but I'm not sure because he thumped people quite a bit. (laughs) Anyway, turned out that he'd written a song called uh, Hello Little Girl um, and Hello Little Girl didn't make it, mine did. Hello, uh, So I, I started off my career by beating the Beatles and John Lennon particularly and uh, <laughs> how do you do? Um, uh, his, his song uh, Hello Little Girl went to the foremost and I, again, it was one of those like number 14, 18, I've no idea. I was dealing in number ones at the time. You know, that, <laughs> that was the thing. <laughs> so, so Mitch Murray to the Beatles nil at this point. That's going well, isn't it? Yeah, but it didn't last. <laughs> <laughs> Mitch Murray to the Beatles nil at that point. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, Mitch's career didn't exactly fade away, as he would make out. He went on to have many more number ones, and he wrote songs for artists across Europe that accounted for his one billion sales. Phenomenal. You can hear the interview in full with him on episode 5, along with Russell Hastings, who's also on that episode. Now, Russell is the singer in uh, Bruce Foxton's band. Now, Bruce Foxton was in the band with Paul Weller called The Jam. Now, their band currently is called From The Jam. And Russell tells some great stories on the episode too about Bruce, about Paul Weller, and about George Harrison, to name a few. So it's well worth checking out episode 5. Right, let's move from the 60s into the 70s now and get into the punk days of 1976. It was at this point the movement was really igniting and it was just about to explode here in the UK and on episode 9 I spoke with lead guitarist from the band The Buzzcocks best known for their smash hit single Ever Fallen In Love With Someone You Shouldn't Have Fallen In Love With Ever 
Unlike a lot of other punk bands at the time, though, the Buzzcocks weren't from down south in London, they were northerners. And here Steve tells the story of their first gig, playing as support to the Sex Pistols, after inviting Johnny Rotten and crew up to Manchester to play live. Now here's Steve Diggle to tell that story. Yeah, well, we brought them there because uh, I think it was Howard when he was in the band. Um, he'd, he'd, he saw them in a like, Chelsea, little Chelsea club. It was unknown, really. And he said, we'll put a poster up and, uh, in Manchester. And uh, and we ended up opening up for them. And um, all the journalists came down to see the sex pistols. I'm surprised that there was a band from Manchester there, you know. Yeah. Like we came on and blasted out 20 minutes. So, you know, they were surprised. But that kind of put us on the map because they reviewed that. You know, they all thought it was starting in London. But we kind of had the same idea and feelings in Manchester, you know. And that kind of put Manchester on the map, yeah. and then the provinces on the map, really, because you know people in Sheffield and Scotland and all other places thought, you know, we can start punk banding our our own town. So it was very inspirational, really. You know, in that way, because it's like, well, if the Buzzcocks are doing Manchester, we're going to London at the time. You know, it was like, well, we could do it. When we went on those early tours, you know, every um, every town came alive, you know. All those 70s discos were taken over and, and suddenly become like punk venues, mm. you know. I mean, we didn't know. We, we kind of played, you know, we was on the White Riot Tour and all that, big, bigger venues. But uh, you'd go to these little clubs after and go, this was run down. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody's come alive because they've taken over the place and many a punk venues. So it very exciting times, you know. And um, You said it was really exciting times. I mean, what was it like amongst the punk bands at the time then? I mean, obviously you did bits with the Sex Pistols. Was was the camaraderie about what you were doing at the time? Was the rivalry or was it somewhere in between? Oh, no, we, we, we was kind of like mates, you know. I mean, the Sex Pistols loved us, you know. They loved what we were doing because it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't like them, you know what I mean? Them and the Clash as well, you know. The Clash yeah. loved us too, you know. But so we all became like, the school of 76 really started all that, you know, and um, so, you know, I knew the Clash well and um, and the Pistols well and all that stuff. And also the Jam and the Damned, you know, that was the nucleus of punk rock in 76 and 77. All the other ones came later, you know. Yeah. But that was our school. And if we ever, if I ever run into any of those, we all kind of know where we started from, you know. Um, so there is that camera under there there wasn't any rivalry there with all that then you know but what happened from there then it was like suddenly you had to start making records and uh, and so each band got their own, got their own identity you know because everybody was just oh you're a punk aren't you and all that kind of stuff and then nobody knew really what it was or what it was supposed to be doing and then you know the class put singles out we put singles out and each band had their own identity, you know. There you go, the early days of the UK punk movement. If you want to hear more punk stories from Steve, including a fascinating one about a tour they did in the 90s with Nirvana involving Kurt Cobain and smashing TV sets, then you've got to check out his interview in full. As I said, it's on episode nine, that one. Right, it's time to hear from another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, my first ever guest on the series, in fact, Kenny Jones. He drummed for the Small Faces, then with Rod Stewart and Ronnie Woodwind, 
the band became The Faces, and with various other groups, including a project with Paul Rogers, legend, called The Law. Now, Kenny also faced the tough task of replacing one of the most iconic and legendary drummers of all time, Keith Moon in The Who. Now, Keith was a good friend of Kenny's, the small faces in The Who. They travelled a lot, they toured a lot together, which cemented their relationship. Now, here's Kenny to tell the sad story of how he was with Keith the night that Keith died, and how he was then later asked by the rest of The Who to take Keith's place in the band. Well, I was forming another band with Glenn Johns, our record producer. We were, Ian and I were putting a band together, which is like half American, half English. Um, it, was, it was great. We had a record deal. We were just about to sign it for a million and a half dollars, which was a great lot of money in those days. And uh, I'd just flown back from America to throw myself off a plane into a, a premiere. Paul McCartney was having a premiere of his Buddy Holly film that he produced. Instead of going to the premiere first, he had a party first round the corner from the cinema, in, I think it was called Peppermint Park, I think the, the place he had the, the party in. And I was on, on a table with um, Keith, Paul and Linda McCartney, Paul's brother from the scaffold, and David Frost, who wasn't a sir then. Uh, Keith said to me, what are you up to? I said, well, I just got stepped, stepped off a plane, I'm really tired. I said, I told him about the band. He said, oh, great, good. I said, what about you? He said, I said, you look, you're looking well. He said, yeah, no, he said, I'm off the booze, he said, I'm taking these pills that keep me off the booze. He said, if I, if I have a drink, they have a violent reaction on me. I get really sick and horrible. So he said, I, you know, so I don't touch a drink. I've been like that. I said, oh, great, keep it up. And that was that. So then we went around the corner, walked around the corner on mass to, to the Odeon in the uh, Leicester Square, watched the film. After the film had finished, I said goodbye to everyone, Keith and Pete and well, Roger and all that. Everyone went to bed. Woke up the next day, rubbed my eyes, turned the TV on, and the news was on straight away. And it said, uh, rock star Keith Moon has been found dead in his room uh, of a drug overdose. I went, no, what has he done now? What practical joke is he playing now? It can't be true. I've just been with him. And it turns out it was true. But what had happened is after that premiere, he'd gone home. Uh, I think it was about 1.30 in the morning. Went, took his normal pill that he would take, went to bed, and then woke up a couple of hours later and thought it was morning, um, made some breakfast, took this pill, his morning pill. And if you take those pills too close together, it slows your heart down. And that's how it happened. So it's an accidental overdose. According to the press, it's a drug overdose. Very sad. I mean, I, I would have given anything not to be in the, you know, I'd rather much rather him be there. As I've always said all the way through my whole career with the Who, you know, my time with the Who, once again, a bunch of mates all the time because we toured a lot together. But I've always said there's only one drummer for the Who, and that's Keith Moon. And there always will be one. The only drummer for the Who is Keith Moon. Even though I, I was kind of filling in for a bit, you know, till I suppose till till they found someone appropriate. Now, in terms of joining the Who, then that must. How did you feel at the time? Because obviously Keith Moon's a huge figure. He's he's massively well liked and respected by everybody as well. Um, you spoke there. You were already forming a different group, and there was a lot of money involved with that as well. So when Pete came to you and said, "Join the band," what was going through your head? Uh, well, I got a call from Bill Kirby, the Who's manager, and he said, "He said, oh, Kenny, said I'll come straight to the point." Who have had a meeting, the band has had a meeting, and they want you to join the band and they're not considering anyone else. And I said, well, it's very flattering. Thank you very much, Bill. I said, unfortunately, I can't. And he went, I could, I could hear his chin drop a little bit. I thought, 
I said, what do you mean? I said, I said, well, I'm already, I'm already forming a band with Glenn Johns. I told him all about the band I was doing. I said, well, I said, look, Pete's coming into the office a bit later. He said, why don't you come in and have a, a chat with him? I said, I was having to see Pete. So, and that was only in Wardour Street and I was living around the corner. So I said, okay, so I met up with Pete a bit later. And we sat there for two hours talking about the times that we had good times of touring and God knows what, laughing and joking and God knows what. And then Pete just suddenly went, you've got to join the band. You're a mod, you're one of us. You're... <laughs> and so I kind of, that's, I thought, then I kept saying to myself, you know what, I, I've got to do this. And I don't want to let my, my new band down because we've gonna come a long way. And uh, so I said, look, let me go back and I'll, I'll have a word with my new band. And because luckily we were going to rehearse the next day. They're all in town, so uh, so I said I said to them, look, I've had, I've had a meet with the Who, I've had a call and uh, had a chat, and I said, well, they want me to join the band, and they said, Kenny, you've got to, and they were so gracious about it. I said, oh, thanks. I said, okay, as long as I've got your seal of approval, it's fine. That's ended up in Who, and I, but I said, you know, I said, there's no way. Uh, that I was going to copy Keith Moon. No way I could be like Keith Moon. I'm a completely different drummer. Uh, I, I like the way Keith plays and all that. I like certain stuff he plays. I said, so I'm going to, I can do certain things that because I like them. I like the way he plays them. So I'll do some of that. So, but in the, in the main, I'm a straighter drummer. And I said, we know that. And, they, and Pete said, look, in many ways, he said, you know, we, we have now a complete chance of doing something, you know, something completely different. So I went, okay, great. So that was one of the reasons I sort of went, yeah, to it as well. Cause, but guess what? We never, we never did anything completely different. <laughs> we did everything completely the same. So, you know, we made a couple of albums, which were, were, were good. The wonderful Kenny Jones there. Now, honestly, he told some incredible stories on episode one of Vintage Rock Pod, including how he asked Rod Stewart to join the band, but the rest of the group didn't want him. And there's so much more as well. It's 100% worth your time to go back and listen to episode one. Right, I've got a couple more clips left to play you on this show, and I'll start with this one from the queen of rock and roll, Susie Quattro. Now, she's often held up by legends of rock as being one of the pioneering female figures in the business, and she talks about that in this clip. Now, she was in various groups, including one with her sisters, before she was signed as a solo artist by Mickey Most, and I asked her how it felt to be signed at that point. I had been uh, waiting for that chance my whole life, you know, to tell you the truth. Um, I was never tied to being an all-girl band. I just wanted to play. And um, I actually had two offers to go solo in one week. One was with Electra. They wanted to make me into the next Janis Joplin. Mickey came the same week, saw me, and wanted to turn me into the first Susie Quattro. So <laughs> I took the decision. Uh, Business-wise, no-brainer. Emotionally, of course, very, very difficult, but there was no way I wasn't going because it was my was my time, you know. Now, you were signed um, by Mickey Most, obviously, and you, you, were, you were paired up with Nicky uh, Chin and, and Mike Chapman, and, and the hits just kind of flowed from that point. Now, what was the magic between you guys all together then? What, how, why do you think it worked so well? Uh, they were signed after I did the Slade tour as the opening act with all original songs, I might add. I found my band finally in England. Mm -hmm. I got my people and uh, all original stuff. And uh, so during that tour, we obviously got our sound together. We became a, a unit. And uh, Mickey at the same time had just signed Mike and Nikki. 
And he said to me, even though I'm signed as a singer, songwriter, musician, and I usually do all my own stuff. He said, these guys are real good at the three minute single. So why don't they come hear your set and see if they can craft that. And they did. And if you listen to the first album, all my original stuff is doom, 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 doom. that's what I was writing. So Mike heard that when Wayne wrote Can the Can. We worked very closely together. He wrote specifically for me. He never gave me a song that he wrote for somebody else. He mm-hmm. wrote a song for Susie Quattro, tailored to my character. So yeah. there were times I was in there doing a vocal and I forgot that it was my song and I thought it was Mike's. So we worked real tight. Um, and now, how did it feel then being 23, 24, when you were topping the charts all around the world and touring and working hard? I mean, that must have been incredible because that, that was the dream, wasn't it? Sure. Uh, I'd been training for it since 1964. So um, it was hard, hard work, but work that I love. And I'm not one of the sex, drugs and rocks and rock and roll girls. My father taught me that it was a profession. He was a music to a profession. That's how we treated it. That's why I'm still feet on the ground, basically normal and still out here creating because it is my job. Yep. And I love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, you, you did blaze a trail for, for women and, and other female rock stars to come through. And you probably didn't think that at the time because you were doing what was best for you and you were pushing yourself forward. But looking back, I mean, your, your documentary came out last year, your Watson Hall documentary, and you just look at the names of the people that that, that hold you up in, in such high regard. It's incredible. Kathy Valentine, the Go-Go's and Debbie Harry and Joan Jett and Sherry Curry and, and many, many more. I mean, how how does it feel to be recognized and, and lauded by such incredible female musicians? Well, I mean, I did know through the years, because, you know, we always talk and I always had my compliments, but seeing it on the big screen in a documentary is a totally different experience. And you really, it's, it's actually just very humbling. You know, you go, oh my God, she said, what? You know, wow, it is, it, it brought a tear to my eye more than once, I have to say. So it's a nice feeling to know that I influenced so many people. I'm so glad I did because, well, I always say I kicked the door down because I didn't see the door. And that's my character. I didn't see the door. I can't pretend I did it on purpose. All I was doing was being me. That's all. No compromising. This is me. The awesome Susie Quattro there. She was on episode 10, along with Jack Tempchin, who's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, having famously written the Eagles classic hit Peaceful Easy Feeling, as well as working with his good friend Glenn Fry on Glenn's solo career too. He tells some fantastic stories from the early days of the Eagles and Glenn Fry's career, and then Jack's career as well, writing songs for many other big artists. So please do go and check out episode 10. Right for this episode, though, last but not least is yet another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Yes, the third one on the show so far. He's the lead singer with 60s stars The Zombies, Colin Blunstone. Now, he chatted to me on episode four, telling tales from the band's history. But in this clip, we discuss the now seminal album Odyssey and Oracle. Rolling Stone magazine ranks it in the top 100 albums of all time, high praise indeed, but the album was not a success when it was released. It wasn't until much after that it started to gain a reputation and a following to the point where it's revered as much as it is today. Now, in fact, the Zombies broke up in 1969 because of the album's poor performance, and that's what I put to Colin in this clip. We did. I mean, that's the sort of irony of it, really, that... um I, there, were, there wasn't really a lot of attention given to that album when it was released, and it certainly wasn't a commercial success. And yet, over the years, and it can only be through word of mouth, 
because no one's been promoting it or marketing it, but over the years it has built up a, a phenomenal uh, reputation. And it's often thought of as one of the best albums of the 60s, and that's not me judging it, that's, um, you know, Billboard and Rolling Stone and people like that often quote it. I know Billboard recently quoted Time of the Season, which is taken from Odyssey and Oracle, mm. as the best single of 1969. And as you said, Rolling Stone has named it as one of the best hundred albums of all time, so it got all these accolades, but there was a huge gap. I'm not, I'm not sure that many, this has happened to many albums. So from sort of partial obscurity in 1969 when it was released in America, it suddenly become a very well-known and very well-reviewed and thought-of album. And in its own way, I think it's thought of as a bit of a classic. And as I say, it can only have happened through word of mouth. It quite intrigues me how an album can be virtually ignored at the time it's released and then receive all these accolades so many years later. It, I, I, it's quite, uh, it's a bit of a mystery to me. I've never really understood it, but, but it's a good mystery and it's wonderful to get the recognition, even though it has come after so many years. Absolutely. And just a quick question, somewhere I read, um, obviously Time of the Season went huge as well. We mentioned that off that, off that uh, very same album. Um, were you guys asked to, to reform, to, to then um, come back and play shows and things on the back of that? Well, we were, but it was never, a, a, for, as far as we're concerned, it was never a, a serious conversation. I know that uh, people did contact us, but by then, um, everybody had, had moved in different directions and were involved with other projects, and it just, it was never talked about that we should reform. I, You know, you sort of look back and think, well, maybe we should have had a last hurrah with the band and toured, and it could have been our, our farewell tour. But, um, you know, that's one way to look at it, but it just never came up. We were thrilled that we had success with Time of the Season a long time after the band finished. It went to number one in Cashbox and number two or three in Billboard. And um, so that was, that was a wonderful thing to happen. But even then, Odyssey and Oracle, as an album, was never really a hit. I think it got into the Billboard charts for one week at about 98. <laughs> Well, when you consider it had a number one record on it, um, it's quite strange that it didn't go higher, really. But that's, that's the story of this album. It was virtually ignored when it was released. And as I've said, sorry, I'm repeating myself, but that's, that's what intrigues me about it, that it should get this recognition so many years after it was released. Colin Bluntstone there. Now, he talks all about their Rock Hall induction, being part of the British invasion of the United States, and much more on episode four of Vintage Rock Pod, so you can go and check that out. Actually, Colin's uh, the only guest we've had on twice on Vintage Rock Pod so far, because he was on an episode of Side 2 as well, so you can go and find him on my back catalogue somewhere else on there as well. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed these short stories I've picked from some of the early episodes, so please do go and check out the interviews in full from the early back catalogue of Vintage 
Vintage Rock Pod. And if this is your first listen, then make sure to follow or subscribe to this series on whatever podcast platform you use so you don't miss the new episodes and new interviews that will be dropping in the new year. There's about 60 shows on the series released already, including about 14 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, so many Grammy Award winners, so many multi-million selling artists. Honestly, there's some brilliant interviews there, so please go back and check them all out. Also, please check out Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. If you could hit subscribe, that would be amazing. I'm trying to get the channel to the monetization point so I can make money from the ads that play on the videos rather than YouTube keeping it themselves. All you got to do is search for Vintage Rock Pod. Hit subscribe. It's completely free. It's a big red button. Hit subscribe and you get to see all the videos and everything that I post on there. You get to see some of the full interviews with the mega rock stars, some short stories like these in the episode, uh, some quizzes, some top five song recommendations and much more as well. And also have a look on the social media side of things as well. Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Give us a like or a follow. It would be very much appreciated. Right, that's it for me then on this episode. Until the next one then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hanson, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.